welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is a Thunderbird? What is Mothman? Is or was there more than one? Hello and welcome to the 669th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul and Ben will be here momentarily. He's just running a little late this morning. Those rather flighty questions uh, lead us right into our guest. Uh, we're welcoming back a not-so-unfamiliar subject with a great guest, and we welcome your calls this afternoon. It's 800-449-1240, and any, from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, 401-766-1240, that is, here in Northern Rhode Island, and we will monitor Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for emails. Author, investigator, and artist Linda Godfrey is the author of 17 books on strange creatures, phenomena, and people. She's a, well, she's written about us yet, Ben. Well, Not Ben. yet. She's a frequent guest on national TV and radio shows, including Monster Quest, Seasons 1 and 4, Lost Tapes, Monsters and Mysteries, Sean Hannity's America, Inside Edition, Coast to Coast AM, Wisconsin Public Radio, and many more. She lives in the Kettle Moraine area of southeast Wisconsin, and her husband and mon- with her husband and monster dog, Grendel, Linda's two latest books, Monsters Among Us, an exploration of otherworldly Bigfoots, Wolfmen, Portals, Phantoms, and Odd Phenomena, and American Monsters, a history of monster lore, legends, and sightings in America. Uh, we kind of get a kick out of the fact that Linda's books and our new book have been uh, keeping each other company on Amazon's top 100 bestsellers in three categories over the past week. And Linda's website is lindagodfrey.com. So, Linda Godfrey, welcome back to Beyond the Paranormal. Thanks for having me back, and congratulations on your new book. Oh, oh thank, thank you. you. I, I do appreciate the Beowulf reference, by the way. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Grendel>. oh. <laughs> yeah. so little dog, yes. So let us start off with something simple, but not quite so simple. What is a cryptid? Well, uh, the general definition of a cryptid would be something that looks like it's an animal, but it's either hidden from our normal range of view or it's um, generally not not out there where you can see it in a, in a zoo or even usually observe it. Uh, in in its expected environment, as you would do, you know, say if you were to go bear hunting and find a bear, or um, something like that. This is it, it's something that's hidden. It appears to be an animal, but it's hidden from our general world view. Okay. I'm so, not sure that I've, I've got that nailed down exactly. It, it's a tricky definition. It is. It's just we get the question a lot. Yeah, it's not like you can open up the dictionary and, and see Webster's definition for cryptid. So we're talking about flying cryptids, uh, which seem to range all the way from giant birds to things that don't look like birds at all, say Mothman or things like that. So can you give us some examples? Sure, yeah. And, and you're right. Just because they're flying doesn't mean that they all look like birds. Um, you have... Uh, as you say, everything from winged humanoids to things that look like flying manta rays. You know, where do those things come from all of a sudden? They're, they're, it's a constantly evolving list of creatures and entities, and uh, really many of them, we don't know what they are. There's a group that does look like birds, um, and they can, they can come in all the varieties that regular birds come. There are some that look like great storks. There are some that look like... Um, ancient, supposedly extinct pterosaur type of birds. There are others that look like uh, raptors, eagles, hawks, that kind of buzzards, only huge. Um, and these 
generally to be put in this list, um, they have a wingspan of 10 to 20 feet. I would say is the the uh, the uh, most common uh, judgment people make as to their size. But I started out my book, American Monsters, with a report that was uh, given to me from a professional businessman from Minneapolis who had what I think is one of the best sightings of an unknown uh, bird or, or bird cryptid that I've ever seen because most of the time when people are reporting um, an unknown bird or flying creature, they don't get a look at it in very many situations. Normally, it's just in the sky, and it's notoriously difficult to accurately estimate the size of something that's in the sky unless it's right next to a tree or something where you can compare it for size. You that's know, there's true. There's just nothing to judge it against. Well, this is a man who was, um, and also this was daylight and quite close range, whereas many of them are at night. Um, it might be in the distance. So it had a lot of things going for it to begin. And this man who is, um, he's over six feet tall, maybe, I think maybe, maybe six foot two, um, riding his bike in this nice area in northern Wisconsin, not that far from the Mississippi River. And he looks over in this grassy meadow, and there, standing in the grass, is this giant bird. And because of his own height, he and he knew, you know, he could put himself in relationship to the height of the grass and then look at that bird, which wasn't all that far into the field, and realize that this bird was quite a lot taller than he was. And it was indeed massive. And he was so, he said he felt like he had just, you know, come across something from Disneyland or this amazing, you know, it's like you're seeing a miracle. And he, he said he got off his bike and started walking into the field without even thinking about it, you know, because he was just so, um, you know, attracted to seeing this thing. And then he realized, he got this sudden thinking feeling, oh, what if it's a female guarding a nest, you know? And when he got this kind of thinking feeling about it, it turned and looked at him. And that was kind of a critical moment because he felt like it could have come toward him or um, gotten him. It was, you know, he didn't know what its capabilities were. But instead, it began to flap its wing and appeared to be trying to fly away. But it was having trouble at that size moving its wings fast enough to get lift, to get up into the air. And he watched it finally kind of take off. And he said he could see it as the wings were moving up and down. He could see the, the, the feather structure billowing. You know, so it, it wasn't anything like a phantom. It was, um, you know, 100% real 3D, as I said, in bright daylight in the morning. And he watched it finally take air, and then it went over toward this road that he'd been pedaling his bicycle on, which was um, an asphalt road that led through this kind of nice area of vacation home. And he said it was still, it followed the roadway for a while, maybe because it got... I don't know if it was easier to lift off from it or whatever, but at that point, he was able to observe that the wingtip stretched from one side of the road to the other. And when I went up there, it was uh, near Hayward, Wisconsin, by the way, when I went up there to interview him on site, um, I was able to measure that road at that point, and it was about 22 feet wide. So this thing had a 22-foot wingspan, and it was all um, like a silvery-white color, um, to, to light, pale, pale gray, very light colored, 
he would put it more in the range of the, the stork-like creatures, and he did a couple of sketches for me that appear in the book. Um, and that's probably the closest thing I could come to his decision. But he really, um, still, this was a few years ago, he considers it you know, one of the, the key incidents in his life to have witnessed something so unusual and, and to him almost miraculous. Mm. And it's interesting because, you know, he would, he asked me what, you know, why did I see this? What do you think this is from? And, um, I, I put this entry in my blog, uh, a couple of months ago at lindagodfrey.com when I just happened to come across a story about an island that was farther down the Mississippi that the chief Blackhawk, um, of the famed, uh, Blackhawk Wars used to frequent, um, as, uh, a, a young man because it was just full of all kinds of nature and wildlife. It was almost like a, a hunting paradise for them um, bef- before they had to move. And he said that, uh, and this I think was in the um, the autobiography or the biography of, of Chief Blackhawk. I've got it notated in the book that there was the reason it was believed to be such a beautiful hunting place was that there was a great white spirit bird that lived on the island and that kept it this way. And eventually, after um, the, his his tribe was forced to move away, and this island was taken over by the U.S. military for testing bombs and things like that, um, it's assumed that that bird had to leave, that the spirit bird had to leave. So it, this is sort of fanciful on my part, but I thought, well, that's, you know, what if there was this great white spirit bird, and it's out there um, still looking for another haven in which to live, and and maybe somebody had glimpsed the same, or maybe somebody back then had glimpsed the same bird that this gentleman, John Boldwan is his name, had seen and got this idea of there being giant spirit birds. Um, you know, it, it's it's a complete mystery as to, as to what the actual answer is, but I, I thought it was neat that there was that little bit of correlation in fairly recent history, as history goes. Okay. Well, I was I was I was leafing through your book, and I, I I saw one thing that stuck out a lot to me, and that was bat squatch. So could you say <laughs> could you say a couple of words about <laughs> bat squatch? What what is yeah, this? You know, well, first of all, bat squatch is what I always give hands down as my favorite cryptid name. I mean, you know, you you just can't beat the name of bat squatch. It's and it's it, a really good name. Yeah, it, it is, and it it comes from. Um, the fact that it's generally seen as having um, bat-like wings, but then it has a furry humanoid that reminds some people of, of a smaller Sasquatch um, in the center. So, hence, um, you know, bat and Sasquatch put together. And these are not seen as, um, just in one spot either. These are another one of these creatures that seems be universal, especially in especially in the Americas, and that name was coined um, in Tacoma, Washington, which actually is a great state for Sasquatch. And uh, there was a young man. This was reported in the Tacoma, Washington News Tribune by um, a reporter, C.R. Roberts, that C.R. Roberts that I was able to get a hold of and and interview. Um, he discovered there was a, a young man named uh, Brian Canfield who had a nighttime encounter with what he described as a nine-foot-tall winged creature, and he'd been having trouble with his carburetor as he, as he was driving, 
and um, his engine suddenly failed. And he was a little bit puzzled. It didn't seem quite like his previous troubles. So the car, but the car just stopped. You know, he wasn't even able to guide it to a stop. It just stopped right where it was. And all of a sudden, he saw this big thing descending out of the dark sky, and it landed. It wasn't any, you know, ghost type of thing, because when it landed, it uh, puffed up this huge cloud of road dust as if it had been really heavy. You know, it just kind of whumped down onto the road. And he said, it was standing there staring at me like it was resting, like it didn't know what to think. I was scared. It raised the hair on me. I didn't feel threatened. I just felt out of place. And uh, the the reporter that I interviewed told me that uh, he believed that this boy had the experience. He was 19, year old, 19 years old, I should say, boy, a young man, had the experience that he described and that um, he cross-interviewed him. He did background checks and everything checked out in the story. But we have... Similar descriptions, um, I've, I've interviewed um, a man in Wisconsin, the western edge of Wisconsin, who encountered a very similar creature, thought that it was going to run into his pickup truck, crash right into the windshield. Its wing spread was at least as wide as the truck, and at the last minute it zipped up into the air and went, ran, or excuse me, flew off. And then um, there have been, we've had bat squat sightings even over downtown Chicago by several groups of people at different times. Um, Pennsylvania, Missouri, they're all over the U.S., so, and which makes sense if they're that large and they can fly. They should have a pretty good uh, range of territory. What are they? We don't really know. <laughs> you know well, nobody has caught one to examine. Mm. Well, Linda, several questions <clears throat> arise on a deeper level perhaps, and of course, you face what we face here, and that's when people write in with various stories. You just have to presume that they're telling you the truth, and of course that that's a big presumption in this field. But assuming that yeah. it, with the the number of reports, obviously uh, people are are seeing something. Um, among the questions that arise, and I'm, I'm, this goes, I suppose, both to bat squatch and to the uh, spirit birds slash thunderbirds. Uh, there's the question of something this large in the modern world. Where could it Hide? How come people don't see it? I mean, you know, there are Google Earth, uh, all sorts of defense satellites that that really have photographed uh, every and are, and are constantly photographing, you know, um, most of much of the Earth's Earth's surface at any given time, the skies, etc. Things are pretty well monitored. So, well, um, I think I think the argument I would make against that is uh, if it's sea creatures, that's one thing. What? Because well, we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about our seas. So if it's sea oh, creatures, yes, that's yes. that's that's what I'm saying. So sure. I mean. Flying things, that's right. one thing, but sea creatures, that's another. Okay, well, all right. Uh, right. So, uh, but it's a matter of the flying creatures uh, right. that, we're, that we're referring to, actually. So, um, wh- wh- where are they? H- how do they, do they come and go? I mean, some of the natives will tell you that they, they come and go. They're shapeshifters, things of this kind. Uh, do they come from and go to other, other places, other times? Uh, or are they just really good at playing peekaboo? Yeah, you know, there are, as you say, several different possible explanations, and it's really hard to know which one is which one is true, if any of them are. Maybe it's something we haven't even thought of yet. But um, I did I did notice when I was uh, doing research that there were a lot of giant bird sightings um, 
around Illinois and other states that follow the Mississippi um, in the 1960s. And it occurred to me that, um, after digging around a little bit, that this is when they started putting highways through the rainforest of South America. And I started thinking, well, what if this finally deserved or dislodged these creatures that had been found their last refuge in these rainforests, which many of which are, are very dense, um, you know, lived in only by very small populations of humans. And then all of a sudden there's this highway coming through it and things are flying north and other places trying to find other homes. That may have been part of an explanation. Um, I think there there are some areas on this earth that um, are, you know, it, it, the, the greater we go with these satellites, the harder they're going to be to remain secret, but that perhaps are at least um, partly covered by tree foliage or other natural uh, things. Some people think these creatures are inhabiting um, old mines and caverns beneath the earth. There's uh, My friends Chad Lewis, Noah Voss, and Kevin Nelson have a book out about um, what they call the Van Meter Visitor, which was another one of these great birds that really kind of resembled the first one that I talked about, except that it had a horn on its head that emitted light, but it was seen um, in the early 1900s by almost the entire population of this small town called Van Meter in Iowa, and it flew out of an abandoned mine, and that seemed to be its home. It would return to it, and when it did finally, and I mean, this wasn't just fleeting sighting. Uh, town fathers were, you know, shooting it with, with uh, their their rifles and and uh, causing very little harm to it. It was wandering around the town, both on foot and in the air. Hmm. Um, they had quite good quite good uh, looks at it. And when it finally left, two of them came out of the mine shaft and flew away. And um, I I guess there are possible sightings yet to this day, but not to the extent when it made that first appearance. And in fact, this little town every uh, fall now has. Um, a Van Meter Visitor Festival where they kind of celebrate this little bit of their history. So that's another possibility, the underground cavern. Sure. And then, of course, if you go to the idea of other world portals or um, other, you know, places unknown to us, that's, you know, to my mind, I can't throw it out because I don't know enough about it to eliminate it or say, or to say, Yes, this is definitely it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just remains kind of an unknown possibility. But I think more and more people are taking this idea of portals to other realms, and that's a, that those are real layman kind of, you know, historic type terms. As we get more and more from physicists about the possibilities of there being parallel universes, um, other dimensions of reality, that are separate but perhaps interactable with our own. So far, they've only shown interaction on a subatomic level, but they don't know that that's the the end. That you know that may change too as studies go on. And um, the thing is, with with the physics, um, you know, most people, myself included, don't know enough about this sort of physics to read about it and say yes, that must be it or not. But the thing is that. They've, uh, our, our leading edge physicists have been putting together um, the ba- what they feel are the basics of quantum physics with formula and um, 
theory that are at least partly provable. You know, they can they can prove some things about it. So then when these theories predict things like these other worlds, um, they're encouraged to think that perhaps someday these will be provable too. So it's not like that's just some, you know, fairy tale explanation anymore. It's something that um, our, our top physicists and, and human brains are actually working with. And so we just have to sort of wait and see what they come up with. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. If we're lucky enough to live, if we're lucky enough to live that long, right? Uh, <laughs> in your description of of uh, one of the Mississippi River area cases, Linda, it's very interesting to hear uh, the report that the uh, the car died. Okay, and uh, that the man felt out of place. Um, but but the car dying that that's that's a that can be a symptom of an electromagnetic pulse. And I would I would yes. be curious to know whether uh, if he was wearing a watch, if that stopped too, or what, whatever else happened. And his comment that he felt out of place was very interesting as well. But uh, first of all, the the engine stopping. Did you speculate? Do you have any any possible explanation for why that may have occurred? And you know, if it may have been an electromagnetic pulse of some kind. Well, car engine stopping. Uh, that that's a fairly common uh, thing to happen. Hmm. With uh, encounters of any sort of event of high strangeness, it happens a lot at places where there are known what they call spook lights, where there are um, not just legends of the old railroad man swinging his lantern and being killed, and his light comes back. But there are places where people see actual um, lights zipping around, coming through their cars, stopping the motors. In my uh, Monsters Among Us book, I have the story of. Uh, um, sheriff's deputy in Wisconsin who was sitting near a marsh doing his reports and watched this, all of a sudden noticed this uh, kind of colored mist was coming toward him. It wasn't just a general mist. It was a, a structure that, w- that was coming toward him, um, went over his car, and everything went out in his squad car. Um, the computer, everything electronic just stopped. And he realized later he was missing about 20 minutes of time during that. So, again, that's that idea of the feeling out of place, out of time. Um, very very common with many of these um, unknown phenomena that people feel out of place and that there's interference with electromagnetic um, devices. Hmm, interesting. Well, that's something perhaps to uh, keep an eye on in the future and maybe... Uh you know, we'd be interested in hearing more about that. The uh, sure. the only point I'd make is in, in returning to a discussion about the parallel world thing, if that has anything to do with this. Uh, in our experience, the 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 boundaries of the parallel realities are electromagnetic, so maybe that's got something mm-hmm. to do with. It. Yeah, but uh, and especially feeling out of place. You know, maybe he was temporarily somewhere or someone else. I don't know. Right. Um, so you know, who knows? Um, do you have there been reports? Have you noticed in areas uh, where these occur of of other kinds of paranormal phenomena? I mean, uh, you know, during the Mothman thing, for example, there were a lot of reports of UFOs, people having yes. psychic experiences, men, you know, that sort of thing. Have you noticed anything like that? Well, it it is true that where you have one type of unknown, unexpected phenomena, very often you're going to find other types as well. Um, 
there, you know, what John Keel called the window areas, and as mm. you mentioned, Point Pleasant was one, you know, with the, with the Mothman and UFOs and Men in Black and all kinds of, uh, he, John Keel experienced all kinds of weird electronic things with his own telephone and other things that, that he had. So um, in Wisconsin, I identified an area that I called the 13th square mile of weirdness, which um, is in an adjoining county to Walworth, which is uh, uh, my kind of my home county. And it, within this 13th square mile, you have everything from a major, the Esteland State Park, which is a major ancient Native American, um, both burial mound and, and kind of fortress, um, which is very mysterious. That's enclosed. You have a major very early possible upright canine sighting. It's somewhere between a, a Bigfoot and a, and a canine. You have, uh, I've had great bird reports, lots of Bigfoot reports, um, other th- um, light, weird lights, all within this 13 square mile range. You know, and what what is it about that? It's, uh, sometimes it's due to, there are also um, very major power lines mm. included in these types of areas, is uh, and I've always made it my business from the very first time I started investigating these things, which was 25 years ago, actually, um, when I first broke that story of the Beast of Bray Road, to look at maps and go over the local history books and see what other, what geographical, geological, and human cultural artifacts are found within a region where these sightings take place. Uh, sorry, I have to interrupt you, Linda. We have to take our bottom-of-the-hour sure. break, but we'll be right back with that thought. And you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful but a little bit chilly Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with Linda Godfrey. Stay with us. Hi, this is Don Brunell inviting you to join me for ON Midday, weekdays from noon to 2, right here on ON 1240 Radio. We've got gold cuts, guests, and our daily super quiz. The Midday Show, right here on ON, local radio at its best. ON Radio, ON Worldwide. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. We're on with Linda Godfrey today, and we have a number of charities our show has adopted, and we'll talk about that in our announcement section coming up toward the end of the show. But, uh, Linda, please uh, feel free to finish your thought now on on, uh, other phenomena that occur in these areas. Yeah, um, well, I I think I had just basically said that I, I do like to explore with maps and local history, everything that's in that area, and then see if there are connections mm-hmm. to them. And um, I took it a step further in Monsters Among Us, the book that just came out in October, and where I had an incident, and most of this book is about creature sightings that have a little something extra to them, whether it's... A, yeah, our um, producer is holding the book up right now for those who may be look, watching on a device where they have the audio, uh, the video feed. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. Move. Oh, great. That's Okay. Um, where there are strange lights or UFOs or other weird things, um, mists or whatever associated with the creatures. And wherever there was a date that was affirmable or close enough that I could look up, I looked up the moon phase, what the solar flares were doing on that date, whether there were UFO reports or Bigfoot reports that I could find in researchable uh, data on the Internet, and then included those 
just to see uh, as kind of a sampling of what you would get if you really tried to investigate all of the things that were happening at any one given place and time where you had one of these cryptid sightings. And, of course, one book like this where I'm just examining a, a certain number of, of incidents is, is not like a, a universal study by any means. It, it's not, I wouldn't call it statistically valid, but I think there was enough to be interesting that it happened as often as it did and that the cases I was examining were all somewhat unusual as cryptid sightings going, as if, as if seeing, uh, you know, a walking canine or, um, you know, a, an eight-foot-tall ape-like creature, <laughs> humanoid <laughs> ape-like creature weren't interest, were interesting or unusual in themselves. This is, I, in fact, I was going to call this book, my, my proposed title for it was The Stranger Side of Strange Creatures. Um, so they already had a stranger side, but then I was looking for these associations. It's, it's interesting, um, I've never really found any big correlation, for instance, between the upright canines and full moon, um, but I did notice when I started really looking up these moon phases that the three-quarter moon showed up more often than any other. Interesting. Oh. Okay, Linda, um, before we proceed, I want to give you a chance to talk about your books, your website, where people can get them and where they can find out more about you before we burn up this hour. Oh, thank you. It's at lindagodfrey.com. There's no W's, just lindagodfrey.com. That's my blog site, my WordPress blog. And you'll find, um, for instance, that giant spirit brood story that I talked about before, um, other things on my blog that don't always appear in my books. You'll find pages where I have biography, list of books, etc., um, and other things. There's a frequently asked questions section um, in case you're wondering what some of these other things are that I was talking about or what an upright canine is. You can go to the page for that. So it's all pretty much there. Book lists, too, with clickable links, all at lindagodfrey.com. Great. Okay. Uh, now, <clears throat> getting back to flying cryptids, there are some reports of cryptids like Mothman, at least that we've heard, where they have wings, but they don't flap them when they fly away. Is that is that correct? I mean, and, and if so, how do they fly if they're not flapping wings? Yeah, you know, I've heard this before in other types of reports. Um, for instance, the, the one I call the Wisconsin man bat that I had mentioned earlier, um, when this thing was going to hit the windshield, it didn't start billowing its wings. It just snapped these these wings kind of upward and then soared up into the trees. And there was another sighting that may have been related to this uh, in some way because it was uh, it was farther north in Wisconsin, but it was up a river that uh, flows up from from La Crosse. And there were several highway workers in a truck, and then there was also a state patrolman that separately saw what they described as a lizard man standing in the middle of Highway 13 up near Medford. And they said in, in both cases, it appeared to just be standing in the highway, and then when it thought it was being observed, it snapped these wings out from behind its back and just, again, soared up. So these seem to be different things. But, you know, it's almost like you visualize a man with a rocket pack on his back. Mm. That that's the kind of motion, as opposed to the very first incident I talked about, which was a giant bird with feathers and the billowing feathers type of thing. So they seem like very different beings that only sort of 
coincidentally both have the ability to soar through the air. Hmm, okay. During your investigations, have you, uh, you've, you've mentioned talking to some of the native peoples, but um, how, how often is that a part of your investigative process? Well, as often as I can find any connection, I always do look for that. I, you know, what, one of the things that I check out is ancient native um, sacred areas, and very often you'll find some kind also proximity to um, First Nation reservations, um, of different of different people all across the United States, they'll very often be there. Um, I, a fair number of times, there will be um, a Native American person writing to me. Other times, um, I will seek out a tribal member and um, try and get a word from an elder as to what they think something might be. If I have a reason to look in that direction, um, so. Fairly often, I would say this, this figures into this type of investigation. If you're looking at all, um, especially if it's something that's out in a wilderness area, you're going to be um, somewhat likely to find a connection, I think. Even if something is like far out as dragons? I mean, not, not outside of Quetzalcoatl, but like, you know, the more modern version of dragons. Yeah, because I do get people reporting that they see what they think is a dragon. You know, complete down to scales and and uh, um, the same kind of storybook dragon type of look that that you would expect. And there are sometimes um, depictions, Native American depictions of creatures that have scales. Uh, for instance, down near Alton, Illinois, you have um, a very very famous rock art that was depicted by early. Explorers, um, it's no longer there, but I think they've they've repainted it, and it looks sort of it looks it reminds me of uh, old depictions of griffins, you know, which were kind of combinations of dragonish looking uh, features and other types of features, and it had um, a long tail, it had uh, scales on part of its body, it had claws, and I, I think that you could argue it was. Um, you know, as much of a dragon-like thing as, as anything else. It had wings, so um, you do find these things if you go if you go far enough back. Um, but dragons are almost a universal type of thing. You know, the the Chinese um, regarded them very highly. Uh, they're they're not always fearsome, bad, malevolent creatures as as we tend to see them in, in Western culture. So that sort of begs the question, how much does culture and popular perce- uh, perception play into these sightings or reports? Um, I think that's something that's always fair and good to look at, you know, because um, th- there is a theory. I have some colleagues who really think that a lot of these sightings are um, not individual shapeshifters, but part of some sort of pervasive spirit kind of matrix, if you will, that can interact with individual humans that at certain points, wherever it suits its purpose, and show itself as um, one of any enormous number of, of creatures. And that they do this partly by interacting with the human consciousness or the human, the human brain, which, um, interestingly enough, some of our uh, scientists now call 
uh, a sort of quantum computer, the human brain, and then uh, display themselves as, almost as, as uh, you know, the, the usual idea of a, a shapeshifter would do, as to whatever seems to be in that person's mind um, that would serve its purpose. And, you know, I actually had an interesting um, de- kind of personal demonstration of this. I was doing my research for the book Weird Michigan, and I ended up in this uh, little town in, in Michigan. Um, nobody knew I was coming. I just found out about this that day when I stopped in at the local um, history chapter and found out that there was a haunted building downtown. Went there to see it, ended up in the basement of this very old brick building. Nothing in the basement at all um, except a dirt floor, one or two bare light bulbs. And the we turned off the light, and the owner and I both saw something at the same time. What I saw was a light-emitting, basketball-sized, glowing sphere about seven feet away from me, hovering near the ceiling, that evaporated just as soon as I began uh, pulling my camera up to take a picture of it. Yeah, as, as don't you know. love that? And at the... And at the same time, she didn't, she didn't say anything until I asked her later. Um, the owner, who knew that there was um, seen a, a specter that locals called Basement Billy because he was supposed to be a young man who died of diphtheria back in the late 1800s who lived in that building, um, she saw the full-out um, specter of this young man dressed in the period clothing. And all I saw was what I refer to as this of electromagnetic energy because I don't really know what it was. Hmm. So um, something, to me, I felt that something was focusing on an image she had um, and showing that to her and then focusing on, really, I had no expectation at all of seeing anything because, I mean, I was going to, you know, like 20 of these places a week and you take a picture and you leave, you know, because nothing usually shows up. So I saw the just the uh, energy sphere, and that may be how it is with some of these creatures. I, I don't know. So, with that being said, does that make the experience less real, or does it make it reality? Well, it's not reality as we um, think of reality normally, nor is it reality as our present science can um, finally perfectly explain but it was certainly a real experience to me and to that lady. She was pretty odd. Um, and I know, you know, I saw this thing, and I could barely believe that I that it was there. I turned my head. It was pitch black in there, and there was, there was nothing to reflect from everything. All the ductwork was covered with brown paper. I turned my head away for a second and looked back, and it was still there. And I felt that it had this sort of awareness, that it was, like, curious about me or something at the time. Um, and I've since had another experience with one of these light spheres where two other people were with me, um, and the three of us saw the same thing at the same time. So, mm-hmm. and it was real. I mean, it's a real experience that we had. The reality sure. involved in whatever presented itself um, is an open book, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, there are all sorts of variables and questions. Uh, anything else? Up okay. to you. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to get, to get back to the Mothman uh, phenomena. In, in the uh, 1960s, uh, the Mothman being a, a media label that had put on a, the, cr- the creature or creatures who were most commonly seen uh, in the Ohio Valley during this period. So, Linda, um, it's very interesting that, that most people had negative experiences 
with this Mothman creature, which looked like it had wings and this sort of thing, red eyes and all this business. And other, and but a few people had positive experiences with it. In other words, um, some people were, were utterly terrified. Most people were being utterly terrified in the presence of this thing. And others, a few others, have reported um, increased psychic abilities, increased ability in, in uh, art and math, things of this kind, uh, almost a consciousness shift. In your experience with Mothman in particular, and uh, you know your research into Mothman in particular, and these flying cryptids in general, or maybe even cryptids in general, have you encountered people who had very positive experiences in encountering them? Um. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're very much in the minority. Most people mm. who see any kind of a giant unknown creature are terrified, and many times they will say to me, I wish I had never seen it. You know, I, I wish I could unsee it. Mm-hmm. Um, I see it every day. I think about it every day. And it kind of continues to, to you know, nag at and prey upon people's minds in most cases. However, um, once in a while, there'll be a person, um, you know, it's the same thing with the, the unknown upright canine. And most of the um, people that I interview are terrified of it, wish they hadn't seen it. But I can think of one lady who saw it um, while she was actually driving through a cornfield to bring lunch to her husband, who was a farmer working out there. And she saw it just kind of pass between the cornrows and look at her, and she said, she was not afraid in the least. She felt really lucky that she saw it. She felt that, um, you know, it was peaceful and it wasn't doing going to do anything to her. She never had any additional um, things happen to her. But um, I can also think of a woman who, and there, this this lady's case is a, a long chapter in the Monsters Among Us book. Um, they, she and her sister lived across the road from the Ho-Chunk Reservation, kind of in the center of the state. And she at one time saw this giant bird just sitting in the road, and she talked to a Ho-Chunk elder about it, and he said that was the Thunderbird, and it was a very special, sacred sighting. And she was uh, very pleased about that. But then after she saw that, um, she and her sister both began seeing on their, well, elsewhere and on their property, um, both upright canines and um, Bigfoot, and we're having all kinds of poltergeist activity, and there were things slamming against the siding of their house and denting it in. I saw several places in their, on their house when I went to examine it um, where something huge had obviously bashed into the siding. Um, all kinds of weird things happening in the house with lights and faucets turning on and that sort of thing. So it turned out to be not so pleasant. You know, it started out as, as um, being this this very sacred thing, but um, then it, it kind of changed. And they're, they're still having, it's quieted down some, but it went on like that for a couple of years, and, and now it's generally seeming to slow down. Interesting. But, so it kind of, people's experiences will run the whole gamut. Yes, indeed, indeed. Well, that kind of leads into uh, another question regarding uh, the Mothman uh, in the broader sense, Linda, and that's, Probably because of uh, the the movie, the I guess the 2002 movie, The Mothman Prophecies, which was loosely based on John Keel's book of the same name. Uh, Mothman was presented as sort of a precursor to a very serious uh, and deadly bridge collapse in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. 
and the Silver Bridge incident of 19, I believe it was 1967. And uh, the question is, do you really think that the uh, that the Mothman events of that period in the 60s had anything to do with the collapse of that bridge, which killed, I believe, almost 40 people? Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, an, it's, it's a, so hard. Oh, yeah, go ahead. It's, it's so hard. It's so hard to answer a question like that because. We lack understanding of whether these are all things being caused by creatures leaking out of some window area area into some you know parallel world, or if they're you know to think of it as being a precursor makes you think that this was um, you know in the works and being planned somewhere in the spirit world, and so this thing was sent out as a herald of it you know or as a warning. I think that would probably be a more more historic view. Uh, way to describe that idea of the precursor but we but we don't know and the, the thing is that I don't find an association in just the, um, the large bird sightings that I have looked up elsewhere you know like all the, the ones you know in the, in the 60s in Illinois and the bat squatch out in Tacoma, in Tacoma to really say well every time we see one of these weird bat squatch type creatures it's a herald of of a bad event, you know, it might just be coincidence. Um, mm-hmm. I I don't know. I can say that the one in Wisconsin did happen to be three days before the drowning of um, a, a UW student. Who uh, it, it's there's been a pattern of these really pretty much unexplained drowning of young men in the river downtown Lacrosse um, that goes back to the the 1800s. Started with a young a young doctor was kind of inexplicably drowned. And that bad squatch appeared three days before one of the, the more recent um, examples of that. But we didn't have any other presentations of such creatures that I know of before the other drowning. So, um, you know, how can you say it, it must have been that, for one, when the other ones didn't have any apparent... Um, Maybe they did. Maybe somebody saw something and didn't report it. You always have to keep that in mind too. But there's nothing to um, to compare it to. To say, yep, every time somebody drowns or every time a bridge goes down, you're going to see these bat wing creature things. Yeah, you, you can. Your imagination can ru- can run wild. Linda, this is a question that uh, perhaps many people may be asking. Uh, do Do you have any recommendation for what people should do? if they believe they've had a, a sighting of a flying cryptid or any, any cryptid at all, you know, with, uh, uh, or maybe a flying cryptid, because with, with Bigfoot, you can go to the uh, Bigfoot Research Group, or, or with a UFO, you can go to MUFON, a mutual UFO network, or uh, any kind of ghost thing. There are all kinds of people passing themselves off as experts. But I've never heard, other than, than, than your, your very capable self, um, wh- where can people report sightings of flying cryptids and and be taken seriously and have it have it uh, treated with uh, an intelligent approach yeah well there are there are people um you know and i i don't consider myself an expert i consider myself a, a long time serious student of of these uh, of these no, we take you seriously but, um, oh thank you um but stan gordon is is uh, one person that i can think of he's been studying these things in Pennsylvania for a long time. Pennsylvania is a real 
hotbed for all types of these sightings. Tell us about it. we got a case going on in western Pennsylvania that would knock your socks off. Wow. Yeah, you know, and I've actually got a couple that have been going on there, too. Maybe we'll be in touch with you about that. Maybe they could dovetail. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. So, you know, there are people like like Stan Gordon. um, I mean, you can go on the Internet and find different people who are um, putting putting witnesses on radio shows or doing other things. There are more venues now than there used to be. And I would say, and for some witnesses, that's fine. If they find it comforting to go on, um, you know, and, and talk about what happened to them on the radio. Um, other people, I've, I've known some witnesses that have started their own web pages or groups. And, you know, whatever feels comfortable to the witness, um, I, 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 don't, I can't recommend any one thing. When people... Call me. I will do my best to investigate it, um, but that doesn't mean I can find out for sure what it is. But most of the time, when I hear from people, they're just they say, "I'm just glad to talk to someone who doesn't think I'm crazy." Mm-hmm. Uh, if we hear of such cases, and we sometimes do, uh, would you mind if we consulted with you? No, not a bit. Good. Okay. Very good. Uh, okay, uh, Ben. Did you have any further questions? Because I had no, I'm all set. Just one more. Okay. Now um, the Question that, that we began. One of the questions we began the show with, just in our last few minutes here, Linda, is: um, Was there more than one Mothman during these incidents in the 1960s? I mean, and uh, because we understand that it's still being seen and it is uh, pretty much a yeah. global phenomenon. So, what, what's the story on that? Do you think? Well, if you read all of the different witness descriptions, you'll find they don't all sound like the same creature. Some appeared to have feathers. Mm-hmm. And then there were others that didn't. Um, you know, some people would describe these big glowing red eyes and, you know, no no mouth. I mean, they were, they the, the witness descriptions varied much more than they do, say, with the upright canines or with Bigfoot, where you can always kind of recognize that, um, that yeah, this is a fur-covered canine or this is a fur-covered upright, um, you know, humanoid. The, the Mothman... Varied, and I, I don't know how to explain that. I, I don't know if it does kick it back toward more toward the idea that they were coming from somewhere else that we don't understand. Um, you know, it's, I think it's still a mystery, and um, there may be mines and things around that are maybe they're related somehow to the uh, that van meter visitor. I don't know. Um, okay. It, all right, that's just a I, I, lot I, of open questions. Hate, uh, yeah. Yeah, I hate to say I don't know, but I would not be telling the truth if I if I. Uh, truth is always I best. I, well, we don't. What's what's the matter of our show? Everything we know is wrong, so we're all learning, right? So, exactly. um, give us your website one more time, Linda. Please. It lindagodfrey dot com. L i n d a g o d f r e y. Dot com. Outstanding. Linda, thank you for a very interesting conversation, Indeed. and we'll be, uh, we'll be talking to you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it was great to have you. Alrighty, so our new book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is now in many bookstores and is creeping toward others because of some confusion over the release date. Uh, it's also available on Amazon.com, where it has been the hottest new release in uh, three categories all week, and all the usual internet suspects as well. And if you'd like an autographed copy, just buy the book at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, and or our uh, main website, which is NewEnglandGhosts.com, and uh, it's a great 
Hanukkah gift and Christmas gift. I have to say, though, that we've been a little frustrated all week because uh, Amazon keeps running out of stock. So uh, we love Amazon to death, but uh, if you can't find it there, you can go to our, our BehindTheParanormal.com website, and there's a big banner there that says uh, Amazon run out again or bookstore not get the memo on the early release and you can buy the book from our site and we will be happy to personalize it and autograph it for you and uh, you can just get it quickly that way um and just you know your local stores uh, may have it or may not hopefully they will soon if they don't uh, many thanks to aaron kutu and the great folks at the cumberland public library in cumberland rhode island who helped us officially launch the book the new book on december 1st uh, and to dave richards and all the terrific people here at on 1240 uh who sponsored the event it was uh it was a lot of fun and uh it was pretty cool yeah we had a great time and yesterday we had our first out-of-state book event and we had a great time at the uh book uh club store in broadbrook broadbrook connecticut gosh i cannot say it so many thanks to all the folks who turned out to see us in the heart of tobacco country and on thursday december 29th we'll do a presentation and book signing at the winsocket harris library that's 303 clinton street winsocket rhode island and that will run from 6 30 to 8 p.m okay and that will bring us to thursday july january 19th at the franklin public library in franklin massachusetts uh, that's in temporary digs at 25 kenwood circle and that begins at 6 30 p.m and uh, new book events, some far away from our beloved Blackstone Valley, are being added frequently. So check BehindTheParanormal.com or our show Facebook page for updates. And our new YouTube channel, Behind the Paranormal Case Files, is up and running. And our fourth video about the famous Bridgeport Poltergeist case is on its way. And that was in which my dad worked with Ed Lorraine Warren. And that will be posted. And you can find that on our YouTube channel. That's Behind the Paranormal. And you can subscribe to it, like our videos, and all of that good stuff. Very good. Uh, meanwhile, find out more about the show, our public appearances, and more at that site, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you will also find nearly 700 free recorded shows from both ON1240 here and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. And those those podcasts include the famous uh, Rendlesham Forest, Return to Rendlesham series in 2010, which we started on CBS and finished uh, on an internet station because somebody kept messing with a CBS brand new studio in Detroit and we could it was really weird so th- that's all on there and you can check it out. So um Ben, what else we got? So next Sunday, that's uh, December 11th, uh, we will welcome two famous names, John Zaffis and Rosemary Ellen Guiley for a discussion on haunted things, so objects and such. I uh, just wanted to point out, too, that there are books of uh, interest uh, on Amazon.com uh, to our local audience having to do with Joe Ferrier, and that's UFO Repeaters. Check that out on Amazon, and it should be very interesting, too, uh, for our local folks who knew Joe Ferrier, yes. a UFO expert and talk show host. So anyway, uh, we leave you this afternoon with a thought from American philosopher Will Durant. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.